does the Bible support slavery? This is, of course, the question that was probably at the forefront of most of our minds as we looked over the text this week and studied it in preparation for worship this morning. Does the Bible support slavery? And it's interesting that Paul isn't actually interested in answering that particular question for us. He's more interested in speaking to the people that inhabit that particular institution. See, Paul's concern is that slaves and masters would both relate to one another in a distinctly Christian way. That the flavor of their attitudes towards one another would help the watching world taste and see that the Lord is good. Nevertheless, we will answer that question this morning by taking a a brief survey of slavery before turning our attention to the text. But before we get to the text, let's review our context as we are coming to the close of a particular section that begins with, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. We've said that Ephesians is divided into two parts, doctrine and devotion. Doctrine tells us about what God has done, and devotion tells us how we live now in light of what God has done in us. Ephesians tells us that we have been chosen for adoption by God before the foundation of the world. Not on the basis of anything that we have done, but simply because of who He is. We are told that we were once dead in sin. That we walked according to the course of the world. That we were kind of zombie disciples of Satan. Doing evil things. And God, when we were dead, because of the great love with which He loves us, made us alive in Christ and reconciled us to Himself and to one another. That's the doctrine. God has done a great thing in bringing dead sinners like you and I to life. Promising to us not just peace with Him and peace with one another now, but on into eternity. When we are raised to life as Christ has been raised, and the whole earth is redeemed and restored, This is really good news. The doctrine, that's the first three chapters. And the second three chapters are about devotion. And in this section, Paul tells us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. And so we've kind of summarized it this way. We've said, we've been adopted into the family of God, and now we're learning to live up to the family name. We've been born again, right, doctrine, And now we're learning to walk like our elder brother Jesus walked. It's doctrine and devotion. God has saved us, made us alive, and now we are learning to walk in the newness of life. And we've said Ephesians is in many ways built around this verb, walk. And so we've seen throughout Paul exhorting us to walk or live in a way that is worthy of Christ. Walk is a Hebrew idiom for live. So it says, walk in chapter 4 in the manner, according to the manner to which you have been called in Christ. We're told to walk not as the Gentiles do, as the world does, according to the, the darkened understanding they have about the world, but rather to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We're told to 
walk in love, to walk as children of the light. And then you see in verse 15, the last time the verb shows up, to walk not as unwise, but as wise. We're called to follow God by walking wisely in light of the evil days in which we live and in light of the spiritual realities that are swirling around us. There is a a great spiritual war going on, and we ignore it to our detriment. And so Paul is going to give us instructions about how to live wisely amid these evil days. And he gives us two injunctions that tell us how we can live wisely. You see the first one there in verse 17. It's, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We understand what the will of the Lord is by studying His Word, by submitting ourselves to His Word, by coming together, studying His Word together, by praying and listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as He illumines God's Word for us. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is how we can walk wise. And then the second thing comes in verse 18. We can walk wise by refusing to be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. And the kind of image that Paul uses there is that of drunkenness. And if any one of you have ever been inebriated, uh, not not pointing any fingers, right? Uh, uh, You know that what happens is that the substance that you consume begins to control some of your behavior. The same idea here. Paul says uh, you Christians need to not be drunk with wine, not to be controlled with wine, but you need to be filled, controlled with the Spirit of God. Now, of course, we know as Christians, all Christians have all of the Holy Spirit, and yet Paul calls us to pursue a fullness of the Spirit. And then he drops a bunch of participles on us that tell us what it looks like to pursue the fullness of the Spirit. He says, uh, singing to one another and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Why we sing during our worship services. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. And then thirdly, this is our third participle, verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul uh, takes the time to kind of dwell on this last participle a little bit. What does it mean to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? And Paul says, well, this is what it looks like in three specific relationships that most everybody would be in, will be in. And so he starts with the institution of marriage. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And he says, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Love your wives as Christ loves the church, sacrificing himself for her. He moves on to children and parents. His children... Obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. And then he turns around and says, says, Fathers, you especially fathers, are responsible for rearing your children in a way that accords with the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm not leaving you out, moms, he says. You're included. But fathers, as the head of your wife, as the head of your house, you are the one who is going to give an account to the Lord for how you brought your children up according to the word of the Lord. Care well for your children as they submit themselves to your authority, parents. And now he moves on to this third relationship. And it is between slaves and masters. And that strikes us as really odd because of the cultural moment in which we live. We're so far removed from Rome that we don't have a good idea of what slavery was like. And hopefully, uh, 
will cure that problem a little bit uh, when we go through our survey of slavery. Uh, but for now, allow me to just move forward onto the application before doing the requisite work. Uh, the idea here, how it can apply to us, is how uh, the relationship between employees and employers. And so this is kind of a really standard relationship. Most all of us either have employees who work under us, or we are under someone working for them. And so this is how Paul's instruction will apply to us this morning. All that in mind, we have the context. We're getting ready to get to our text. But first, let me tell you what I think the main idea of the passage is. This is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Christians are slaves. To be a Christian is to be owned by Jesus. That's at the heart of this passage. And it's in light of that truth that we Christians are to render good service with good attitudes to whom service is due, and we're to render that service as to the Lord, because He is our ultimate Master. That in mind, uh, let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Uh, Father, we come this morning to an uncomfortable passage of Scripture, and we thank You. Thank you for it. We pray that it would press on us in really important ways. It would conform us more and more to the image of Christ. We ask that uh, the words I speak this morning would be consistent with the intent of Paul in this particular passage. Pray that you would apply those words by your Holy Spirit to this people, that we might become more like Jesus, that we might become more holy. And Lord, if I falter in this, I ask that, that you would cause those words that are mine and that are off base to simply be forgotten. But we, we trust you. We believe that you call people to life through your word, that you work through your word by your Holy Spirit. And so we come now ready to be worked on by your word and your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as promised, we're going to take a brief survey of slavery. This is not an exhaustive survey of slavery, but it is meant to give you an idea about how slavery existed in three different time periods and places. In Israel, in Rome, and in America. And so let's start with slavery in Israel. Even saying slavery in Israel is a little bit surprising to us. After all, one of the refrains of the Old Testament is over and over again, God saying to His people, you were once slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out of that slavery. And so we don't really expect there to be any, any whiff of this institution inside of the nation of Israel, right? Right? You guys remember the Exodus. We walked through the book. Israel is enslaved. There arises a Pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, that doesn't know God. Israel is multiplying. Abraham's descendants are becoming like the grains of sand on the seashore, just like he promised. And Pharaoh says, this is a problem. And so he begins to oppress the people of Israel through brutal slavery. And God 
knows the plight of his people. And amid all that, he raises up a great deliverer, Moses. And he uses Moses to to go to Pharaoh and to demand that Pharaoh let his people go out of slavery so that they might worship their God, the one to whom they truly belong. And Pharaoh, of course, stomps his feet and says, no. So through Moses, God does those ten signs and wonders. The Nile is turned to blood. There are flies and frogs and gnats everywhere. Hail and lightning. And eventually it all culminates in the death of every firstborn in Israel. With the exception of those who take shelter beneath the blood of a lamb. Remember, this is the origin of the Passover feast. The people of Israel are commanded to kill a blemishless year-old lamb and to, to eat it together and to take some of its blood and to paint the doorway of their houses with it. So that when the angel of destruction comes to carry out God's just sentence, His wrath on the sinners that live in Egypt, that He will pass over those houses that have blood on the doorway so that those who take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb will continue to live. We, of course, know that this points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and to our great salvation that is found. That when we, by faith, trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. And the punishment that we are due in hell, stretched out across eternity, falls on Christ, on the cross at Calvary. So that by sheltering beneath the blood of the Lamb, our sins are forgiven. And we find ourselves free from death. Free from slavery to sin. Free to worship the God that we belong to. God God carries out the the Passover festival. It's not a festival at this point. The original Passover. And there are dead firstborn throughout Egypt, and finally Pharaoh relents. He lets the people go. They plunder the Egyptians. They're they're giving them gold and jewels. And they they go on their way. But Pharaoh, right, he changes his mind. He chases them. God divides the Red Sea. Moses and all of Israel walk through the sea to salvation. And then Pharaoh and those who are in pursuit are crushed beneath the waters of judgment. God brings His people out of slavery and into sonship. From servitude to Sinai. From chains to church. They are free to worship Him. And so, we ask, why? Why is there slavery in Israel? Why when we turn to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus itself, do we find laws about how slavery is to be a feature in Israel, and how it is to function in Israel. We wouldn't expect it. The answer is this. Slavery in Israel was a social good. It was a social good and a stepping stone out of poverty. Slavery in Israel was characterized in quite a few ways, but let me outline some ones that are important for you to put into your memory bank. Uh, Slavery in Israel was temporary, it was voluntary, it was governed by human dignifying rules, it's probably a better way, better adjective for that, 
but rules that uh, detailed how you were to treat those under your charge. And, I said temporary, right? That your slaves would go free every seven years. So they would work for six years, go free in the seventh year. And this is hard for us to get our minds around. It's a very agrarian society. And so the idea is this. You have a plot of land. Uh, things don't work out. You, you don't have a way to feed your family or to make money. And so you could, you could lease your land. That's usually a good option. Uh, but if you've exhausted all your other options, and we saw this in Leviticus, right? Uh, you can sell yourself into slavery. And what slavery does in Israel is it ensures a few things for you. Those, those bare necessities of life. You have food, clothing, and shelter for at least six years. This prevents you from starving to death, allows you to make provision for your family, and it actually provides you a stepping stone as a way out of poverty in the long term. In the seventh year, uh, you must and shall go free. And there's all kinds of wonderful provision. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, in verse 12, listen, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, listen, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Why, why shall I give to him when he goes out from slavery? Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And so what happens is slavery provides an opportunity for those under it in Israel to avoid abject poverty and as an opportunity to get out of it. Additionally, it is a reminder of their redemption, of how God saw them as slaves in Egypt and bought them out of that slavery and then provided for them everything they needed from the wilderness to the promised land. Slavery in Egypt provided a safety net, socially, and a stepping stone. It was a good institution. And so we, we ask that question, right? Does the Bible support slavery? And let's apply it to Israel. Does the Bible support slavery in Israel? Yes. It was legislated by God. And it was there as a social good. Certainly people, like most laws of God, abused it and misused it. But the institution as a whole in Israel was set up to be a positive feature in society. It wasn't to be abused. Israel had come out of Egyptian slavery, and God did not free them so that they might oppress others. Next, let's look at slavery in Rome. Uh, slavery in Rome has got some things that are uh, in common with slavery in Israel, and it also has some things that are not in common at all. And so, it's important to remember how embedded slavery was in Rome. It's estimated that over 35% of the population was made up of slaves. And you'll even notice uh, here in our passage, which I haven't read yet, but we will eventually, I promise, 
uh, it says, the ESV brings across the word slaves as bond servants, right? And, and it does so uh, because it doesn't want us to have in our minds immediately conjured up American chattel slavery. So that's what happens when we as Americans read the word slave. We, we think of 18th century slavery. And so the ESV authors have gone, that's not exactly what's going on here. It's closer to indentured servanthood. And so in 2011, when they updated uh, the translation, this is one of the words they changed was from slaves to bond servants. But the word there is, is douloi or doulos. It, it just means slave or slavery. Slaves, plural. At any rate, there were lots of slaves in Rome. And in Rome, you, you could gain freedom from slavery. But also... Slavery served as a way to prevent poverty. And slaves made up a large range of jobs. So some slaves worked in production, you know, agriculture and, and manufacturing, yeah, all kinds of, of hard labor. They were slaves in the domestic sphere, in the home, right? Helping do those everyday chores on the farm. And there were also slaves in the entertainment business. They were actors and, I assume, comedians and, and entertainers of various sorts. There were also professionals. Slaves worked as doctors and lawyers and um, boat captains and accountants and all sorts of things. Now, oftentimes, one of the things that would happen is that masters would actually equip their slaves with special skills so that they might get better at whatever particular function they had been called to. So well, sometimes what happens is a slave would get these special skills, they would get their freedom, purchase their freedom, they would even become a Roman citizen, and some of them would end up working as a free Roman citizen for their former master. This is really an interesting thing. But I don't want to give you a perfectly rosy portrait of Roman slavery. For us to construe slavery in Rome that way would be a mistake. Uh, there were some of those positive aspects to it, as I mentioned, but there were also a lot of negative aspects. It was, and could be, uh, savagely brutal and cruel. Joe Rigney comments, legal protections for slaves varied, but at a basic level, a master owned his slave and had the right to punish and even kill his slaves. He could direct their behavior, transfer their ownership. There were even laws about freeing slaves. You couldn't just free all of your slaves at once, presumably because this would threaten the social order. So if you wanted to free them, you had to do so a few at a time as regulated by the law. Moreover, the slave system was justified in abhorrent ways. Aristotle and his politics argued that there are some people who are naturally only fit for slavery and that it is just and right to enslave such persons. They are, quote, tools who belong to their masters. Another commenter says, the record of fact shows that Roman slaves were punished indiscriminately, violated sexually, goaded into compliance through intimidation. They were the ultimate victims of exploitation. So we come to our question again. Does the Bible support Roman slavery? Eh? Assume we positive on the positive aspects and negative on the negative aspects. 
But what is really interesting is that the New Testament doesn't comment one way or the other on the institution itself. Remember, we said at the front end, what the New Testament does repeatedly is to speak to those who inhabit the institution. Let me read you some of those places, aside from our, our text this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as it, at it as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved. Notice, Paul is not concerned with starting a social movement. Paul is concerned with the gospel, with the reputation of the Lord Jesus. He wants the name of God and the teaching, that's the teaching of your Bible, the teaching of Christianity, to be held in high esteem rather than being reviled. Paul isn't trying to flip over the whole institution. He's speaking to those who inhabit it. And I do think it's true there, there are sort of seeds of gradualism that serve to upend slavery along with various other Christian principles in the long term, you know, such as Paul putting masters and slaves on the, the same ground and demanding some reciprocity between the two. Yeah, we see that most evidently in the book of Philemon when Paul tells Philemon, receive Onesimus, the runaway slave, back, not primarily as a slave, but primarily as a brother. Because his fundamental identity, his fundamental relationship to you, Philemon, is not slave, but brother in Christ. Act accordingly. Paul also tells slaves that if they can gain their freedom to, to do so, he says it in 1 Corinthians 7. Yet, his primary focus, I say again, is not to start a large social political movement to eliminate slavery overnight. Paul's primary and animating concern is that the name of Christ would be honored. That the reputation of Christ would be honored. That the Gospel would go forward. I think that we ought to take a lesson here. I think it is so easy for us, especially in the polarized political moment in which we live, to, to take a pet political cause and, and 
and pull it over, it might be a good thing, and put it at the center of our lives while pushing the gospel to the periphery. It's not that, it's not that, hey, overturning the institution of slavery and its brutal aspects wasn't a good thing, right? It just wasn't the main thing. It's easy as Christians to replace the center of our lives where Jesus should be with almost anything. We ought to be vigilant. Guard our hearts and ask ourselves, is the gospel and the good name of Jesus at the center of my life? Is that my life's animating characteristic? Because this was the primary concern of Paul. That slaves and masters would commend Christ to one another and to others. Friends, the primary freedom that we are about as Christians is not rearranging our society as good a task as that may be. The primary task that we are about as Christians is the liberation of sinners from slavery to sin to sonship in Christ. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus, not of our particular political cause. Paul is concerned with Christ. I mean, you can see how central Jesus is to all of these instructions. I'll get there in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. Does the Bible approve of slavery in Rome? Eh. It doesn't commend it, and it doesn't condemn it. And that brings us to the last part of our survey. What about slavery in America? What are some, some of its features? Well, slavery in America was founded on uh, some countrymen kidnapping uh, other men and then selling them to foreign men. It was founded on stealing. It was race-based. It offered no opportunity for freedom, for economic improvement, or really for long-term stability. It wasn't about preventing poverty, nor was it governed by rules which dignified those who found themselves inhabiting the institution. No. Does the Bible support American slavery? No. You can see the foundations are very different from those that we find in Israel and even in Rome. It's a very different thing. Moreover, it violates explicit commands of the Bible. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15. You shall not steal. It's built upon the theft of other people's lives. When, when we're told not to steal, I think that that applies to stealing other people and to kidnapping. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul condemns those who would capture others in order to enslave them. Verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
Moreover, we're told in James that we're not to show partiality. And that would include partiality based on race. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The Bible is clear that the foundation upon which American slavery was erected is in violation of the will of God. Not to mention uh, reducing men and women to mere objects. Not treating them with the dignity and honor and respect that is due to every man, woman, and child from womb to tomb. Nevertheless, despite these truths and despite the Christian influence in America, American chattel slavery was able to survive and thrive for quite some time in our country. That is a great stain on our great country's history. It is a stain on the church, and it is a stain on our very own Southern Baptist Convention. Men and, and women who loved Jesus misstepped on this and sinned greatly. American slavery was wrong. It was an abhorrent evil. None of us ought to condone it. I think once more, we, we find warning. It's good, good Christian folk like us were able to take passages like some of those I've cited earlier in, in our passage today that we are going to get to, and they, they took it out of its context, not only in the Bible, but out of its historical context, and then took it and forced it to fit into the shape of the 18th century. What I mean by that is that they, they twisted and molded the Scripture to support what they wanted rather than what it actually supports. Here's the lesson. We can come to the Bible and, and we can read into it what we want. It's called eisegesis. Or, and that's the wrong way to come to the Bible, or we can come to the Bible and, and come under it and can submit ourselves to it, to what it says. That's exegesis. We, the point is this. We are fully capable of taking parts of Scripture, looking through the text, finding something in order to support something that we already believe. We, we come to the Bible and we make it serve us rather than coming to the Bible and saying, how can I serve Christ by obeying His Word? You see the difference? And, and what, what some of our spiritual ancestors did was they twisted the words of Scripture to justify a horrendous evil. The problem is not with the Bible, it's with us. And so I think we do really well to ask ourselves, are there blind spots in my life? 
are there ways that I've used the Bible to justify horrendous evil in my life? Are there ways that I've approved of others twisting of the Scriptures so that they might be content in their sin? But we must guard ourselves against this. We must submit ourselves to God's Word, to a historical and grammatical interpretation of the text, so that we really are getting God's Word and God's intention, rather than basically following our hearts and then using the words of the Bible to support whatever we want. So does the Bible support slavery in America? No. Let me recap that survey of slavery. Support slavery in Israel? Yes. In Rome? Eh. And in America? No. Now, with that question answered about slavery, because that's how we come to this text, you see the word slave, we think of American slavery. With that question answered, let's quickly work through these short verses here. There are two points I want you to recognize. Paul wants both slaves and masters, and again, in Rome, this institution is going to be closest to our employees and employers, so he, he wants employees and employers, both to operate in light of two important truths. The first is that they are both owned by Jesus. And the second is that they are both answerable to Jesus. Let's read the text. Slaves, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. That's not, that's not like... If you're an employee, so let's say I work for Dennis. Dennis, you know, he's a big-time accountant here in Nellie's Ford. You know, there's a place down there, Piedmont, something or other. You know, accountants are scary people. It doesn't mean, like, I work for Dennis, and I'm, you know, I'm an accountant. I love numbers, trying to get into the mindset, right? Love some numbers, you know, and I, and I when I go in in the morning, and I go into Dennis's office, I don't walk in going, <laughs> fearful and trembling before Dennis. No, 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 the idea here is that I would treat him with an appropriate honor and respect. That's what the call is, right? Fear in the Bible has that, that range of meaning. And it can mean terrified, but it can also mean reverent, honoring, respectful. And it's reverent, honoring, respectful that's, that's in view here. So, so slaves, bond servants, employees, obey your earthly masters, obey your boss, with respect with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, don't fake it, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Don't just do it for the people to try to please those around you. Make yourself look good. But as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, a good attitude, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing this, that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, employers, do the same. That reciprocity note surprising there. Do the same means have a good attitude, render service, as to the Lord and not to man. Do the same to them. Treat them with honor and respect. And stop 
You are threatening knowing that He who is both their Master and your Master is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with Him. God is not going to treat you any better because you were a master or a boss than He will treat the slave. On Judgment Day, the CEO and the street sweeper will stand in the same dock on equal footing. God is not going to look at anyone on the last day and say, really impressive. Really impressive. Now, He's going to judge the slave and the master justly, fairly, rightly. And He's going to reward each according to their work, to their good work. You see that? That's the second one. Christians are answerable to Jesus, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So, you serve well with a good attitude. Jesus sees. And masters, if you are serving well, employers, if you serve your people well, those under your care well, God is going to reward you according to that good. And, He's not going to show partiality when He judges. So You can see the motivation here, right? One of the motivations to work well is that we are answerable to Jesus. That work is a spiritual exercise. Your work, whether you are a slave or a master, whether you're an employee or an employer, is an expression of worship to Jesus. And it serves as a witness to who Jesus is. Work is a spiritual expression about worship and witness. Before I get to that application, let me back up a second. The first thing that I should have pointed out to you is that both slaves and masters, they both answer to Jesus, but they are also both owned by Jesus. Notice how focused on Christ this section is. So in verse 5, Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. Verse 6, not as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, rendering good service as to the Lord. When you see the, the Lord in Paul's writing, it's the Lord Jesus. Knowing whatever good he'll receive back from the Lord, that's Jesus. Masters, uh, do the same, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, that's Jesus, and yours is in heaven. And Paul is putting the, the eyes of both the slave and the master squarely on Christ. And he is reminding them both, you are not your own, you belong to God. I think that's one of our catechism questions at the beginning, right? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. And so you can see that the image here that Paul is using to speak to slaves and masters is this. He's saying, you are both slaves of Christ. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Everyone is owned by God because He created everyone. And Christians 
are doubly owned by God. Because not only has He created us, He has bought us back from death. You are not your own. The whole Christian life is a derivative of those words. You are not your own, but you belong to God. This is not the image when we are trying to explain the gospel to people that we usually run to, right? But it really is a striking image that we are slaves to Christ. It's the one from our scripture reading in Romans this morning. I don't know if you caught it or not. When Mike was reading, you notice that those who are slaves of sin, which leads to death, and then there are those who are slaves to righteousness. And we are slaves to Christ. Right? And you have that, now you have been, this is verse 22, you have been set free from sin and have become, there it is, verse 22, Romans 6, slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, that's becoming in practice what you've been declared in Christ. And its end, the end of becoming slaves of God, eternal life. For the wages of sin, and slavery to sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a beautiful image. We were slaves in sin, oppressed by the coming death and the darkness that we had embraced. And God came to us when we were without hope, when the yoke was heavy on our back, and He said, Give me your burden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will take your heavy burden. I will take the sin that you are enslaved to. I will take the wrath of God that is due to that on the cross. Put it on me. Charge it to my account. He takes our burdens. He comes to us in our slavery and He purchases us, purchases us back from death with His precious blood. He purchases us for Himself. Christian, you are not your own. You belong to God. Not because you led a, a rebellion out of slavery. No, you were in rebellion when you were in your slavery. But because you, your arms were laid down when you were confronted with the love of God for you. He came and purchased you out of slavery. It is, I was struck this week when I was thinking about different images that the New Testament uses to describe our salvation. We, we don't run to the slavery image, but it's there, right? We are bought by God. God purchases us. You know, another one, we are born again. You know, you, you don't choose to be bought as a slave. You don't choose to be born again. You're just, you're just born. And God causes us to be born again. Adopted children, right? Adoption we've seen in Ephesians. They don't choose to be adopted. The adopted parents come to them and adopt them. We talk about death to life in Ephesians. Dead people don't choose to be alive. Dead people don't do anything. But God, He comes to dead people and makes us alive. All of these images help us to understand just how much God loves us. He takes the initiative and comes to us in our sin and in our ugliness and saves us. 
Isn't the gospel glorious and dazzling? We, we don't earn our salvation. We don't adopt ourselves. We don't make ourselves alive. We don't cause ourselves to be born again. We don't purchase ourselves out of slavery. God does that. God does it all. We do all the sinning. He does all the saving. And what that means is that my salvation is not up to me. I didn't earn it, and I can't lose it. My salvation was earned by Jesus, and I will lose it when He is taken off the throne of heaven and put back in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. It's never going to happen. I'm secure in Christ because of what He has done. We have peace with God because of what He has done. God has saved us from our sin and the wrath that we deserve. That's good news. Non-Christian, it's good news for you. God's grace is for you. He might even be drawing you to Himself this morning. Don't, don't resist. Believe. Believe. Put your faith in Jesus. Life might be hard right now. You might be struggling against sin. And you might feel like there's no way out or that there's no way anyone could really love you. Jesus does. He won't cast you out if you come to Him. He won't. Not ever. Trust Him. His burden is easy. His yoke is easy. And His burden is light. Christian, you are owned by Jesus. And you are answerable to Jesus. He's going to reward you according to the good that you do. It's because we are owned by Jesus, doctrine, that we want to live lives that honor Jesus. Devotion. And that includes in our workplace. Now here's that application I tried to get to a little bit too early. Work is a spiritual exercise of worship and of witness. So what does this mean for you? Employees, this means that in your workplace, you work at whatever your job is with a good attitude. That you do your job as if it is for Jesus, because Paul says it is for Jesus, rather than for the company or for the boss. You work for Jesus. Employers, this means that you care for those under your authority like Jesus cares for those under His authority. It means that people don't feel like they oppressively work for you, but that you work with them. None of us, no Christian, should be known as the just curmudgeonly jerk of the office, right? You should be like, hey, avoid Lisa. You know, she's having a bad day. That, that shouldn't be the, the picture people have of us in the workplace. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be like, like Angela in the office, right? Just, just really prickly. No, you should be full of the Spirit, happy to serve your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where He has placed you. Happy to serve faithfully, to offer good work with a good attitude. Likewise, masters, bosses, 
Serve well. Do good work with a good attitude. God is going to reward your good work. Isn't that incredible? Don't ask me how. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's a reward. And I imagine it's good. Now some of you are sitting there going, I don't really have a job. Right? Maybe some of you, you children. And Adeline, you don't have a job, I don't think. Eli, you don't don't have a job yet, do you? Not formally, no? The way you guys apply this passage actually goes back into the beginning of chapter 6. Right? Your job right now, it's actually pretty easy. It's to obey your parents. But you obey your parents not just because they're your parents, which is a good reason, but because the way you obey your parents tells about how you are obeying God. Your obedience to your parents is obedience to the Lord Jesus. And so you render good service to your parents with good attitudes because you want to honor Jesus. I think others of us, maybe you're retired, some of you, or you just work at home. You go, well, how, what, how does it apply to me? Well, it means do good work where you are, whatever it is you're doing. Do it, work heartily as it, right? That's in Colossians, as to the Lord. You know, hang a, a sign above your sink where you do dishes that says, you know, divine worship is happening here. <laughs> like, wash pans and sweep floors to the glory of God. He, with a good attitude, he sees and he knows, and he rewards you for the kind of work that you are doing. But work is worship. Work existed before the fall. It continues to exist now. And we are to offer it as worship to the God who loves us and has bought us with the precious blood of Christ. We are happy to be slaves to the Lord Jesus. Because he is a good master. I'm going to turn your attention back to Deuteronomy 15 as we prepare to close. Deuteronomy 15, you'll remember it. It says, If your brother, a Hebrew man, that's verse 12, or a Hebrew woman is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. Now verse 16, I left off last time. But if he, that's the slave, says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an all. I had to look this up, I'm not going to lie. An all is like a, almost like a nail or a needle across between the two. It's a very sharp object, typically used in leather work. So think like big needle, kind of like a nail. You shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door. He shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. Friends, 
we Christians have alls driven through our ears because Jesus had nails driven through his hands for us. We are slaves to Christ, not because we have to be, but because we want to be. Because he is a good master. He is the master of masters, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is God Almighty, and he loves us and has given himself And so in response, we give ourselves for Him. We are not our own. We belong to God. Let's pray. Father, we we thank You for Your Word. Thank You how it testifies to Your goodness. We, We repent where we have misapplied Your Word. We mourn over misinterpretations and and abusive applications of this passage in the past. Pray that you would help us from committing, help to keep us from committing similar sins. We thank you that though our sins are many, your, your mercy is more. We thank you that Jesus has paid all of our debts. And that we are never more free than we are when we are under His easy yoke and His light burden. Thank You for the cross. Thank You for loving us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.